We are turning uh, to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. The Lord is my refuge is one of the great themes of the Psalter. And Psalm 91 is uh, one of the strongest uh, presentations of uh, this theme. And as our outline suggests, there are three broad movements here. The first two verses are a confession of faith by someone who trusts in the Lord as their refuge. And then verse 3 to 13 is a a description of the protection that the Lord provides to those who trust in Him. And third and finally, the Lord Himself speaks in verses uh, 14 and 16. And we see here a close correspondence with the psalm we looked at last week. As Moses interceded and prayed that the Lord would hear him, we see in Psalm 90 the Lord answering and hearing the cry of His saints. This is God's holy word. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but I will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Join me now in our our prayer for illumination that can be found in our worship bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Testament, we turn to Luke 4. Uh, we'll be doing verses 1 through 13, uh, pulling up one verse early to what is in the bulletin. This can be found on page 859. 
if you're using your uh, few Bibles. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness, or in the wilderness, for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil had ended every temptation and departed from him until an opportune time. This is the reading of the New Testament. Please join me for the prayer of understanding found in your bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. As I read this psalm this week, um, I was reminded of of a scene in Saving Private Ryan that had some similar language. Um, The American sniper in that film, if you've seen it or recall it, his name is Private Jackson. And there's a a climactic battle scene in a small uh, French village. And he is uh, up in the high tower in his sniper's nest. And he doesn't quote Psalm 91, but he quotes Psalm 144. Um, It's similar language about refuge and protection and safety. And he's uh, seeking to defend his position as, as he's being overrun by these German soldiers. And bullets are whizzing past his head. And he prays, God grant me strength. And he's... He's working his bolt action. He says, Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And it's a kind of uh, contrasted darkly with these bullets flying and the, the graphic imagery and the violence that makes up so much of that movie. And he prays, My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust. And as the scene unfolds, the situation around him gradually worsens, and the German artillery piece locates the sniper nest and starts to rotate uh, its uh, pillbox on top and elevate its gun and takes aim, and he looks and sees right before the shell is fired. And Private Jackson sees his end coming, and he turns to the camera where his friend is, and his eyes get big with fear and shock, and he tries to get his friend out to safety. But we see the destruction than of that artillery shell. And uh, it raises this question. When you're in the foxhole, praying to God, when you're praying these strong words of deliverance, and we see throughout the, the film that Private Jackson draws strength from his faith in God and the skills he's been blessed with by the Lord to, to fulfill his calling as a soldier. 
And he's protected by him until he isn't. Until the world crashes in. And the question it asks is, is, does he have false hope? Is this piety really that valuable in the battles of life, whether they be literal or metaphorical? Um, there is um, some evidence that in the ancient world, Psalm 91 some was written down on little amulets and worn around the neck to protect from a plague or disease, pestilence. Is that what psalms are? That we might pray and be safe through the difficulties of life? Is, is that how we're tempted, perhaps, to use them? And so I want to use this opportunity today to reflect on, on how to understand these promises of God, of, of His providential care and protection for His people, especially this beautiful presentation of these promises in Psalm 91. Uh, Calvin comments on this psalm uh, very beautifully in his, his opening. He says, In this psalm we are taught that God watches over the safety of His people and never fails them in the hour of danger. They are exhorted to advance through all perils, secure in the confidence of His protection. And the truth inculcated is of great use, for though many talk much about God's providence... And profess to believe that he exercises a special guardianship over his own children. Few are found who are actually willing to entrust their safety to him. Do we really trust God? And what does it mean? What do these promises mean practically for us in our lives today? Well, we see first in verses 1 and 2... And the first point of my outline is this opening summary of the one who seeks refuge in the Most High. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalm piles up here at the beginning language that all draws upon the idea of God as as a shelter, a covering, a protection. Dwelling in a shelter, abiding in the shadow. And the confession spoken to the Lord is calls upon God with these titles, my refuge, my fortress. It reminds us of Psalm 46, which of course Luther set to song in a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. It's fitting here that that the titles of God that are used are the Most High, alluding to Him as a a tower or a rock, and the Almighty, one who cannot be overcome by His enemies. He is like a, a high and secure fortress. And the psalmist not only confesses God, uh, the psalmist not only confesses God as a refuge and a shelter, but he confesses about himself that He in who that it is God in whom he has placed his trust. In other words, there's a confession of the psalmist's need. This is a picture of our faith. We put ourselves in God's hands. And while the body of the psalm makes explicit already in this confession of faith, is that the psalmist is in distress. He needs this protection. He is weak. This is essential to our faith and trust in the Lord. An acknowledgement. That we need to be delivered. That we cannot manage ourselves. Protection is what the Lord provides. And shelter 
and shadow, draw upon images that were common in the ancient world uh, for the work of a king. Sometimes kings were prevented, or rather presented, as great trees that sheltered and blessed with fruit all those who surrounded them, almost like an oasis you would see in the desert, right? You know that there is life and sustenance there, and the king presented themselves as those caring for and providing for. You might think in a medieval context, and this was also true in the ancient world, of a castle that has maybe a moat or a, or a wall around it. And there's a village that surrounds that castle. And in the time of, of raiding bandits or warfare, people go up inside the castle, go into the keep as a place of security. And when we come to the divine oracle in verse 14 at the end of this psalm, God's, uh, see the picture there of faith again. How is he described, this one who trusts in the Lord? Because he holds fast to me in love. That's faith. Not just abstract knowledge. Not just a doctrine. We confess in our catechism that saving faith, true faith, is knowledge, agreement that that knowledge is true, and trust. Trust. This is the language of marriage. We'll see when we get to the end. I will protect him because he knows my name. He knows the Lord, Yahweh. To trust God is to hold fast to him in love, to know his name, that is his steadfast love and mercy. And this brings us, after this confession of what it means for one to trust in the Lord, we have a shift now in perspective and a description of the refuge that that trust, that faith provides. And you'll notice that verse 3 through 13 is in the second voice almost entirely. This will be true of you if you trust in the Lord. And the main body of our poem unpacks the nature of this protection. It's like a sermon or an exhortation to someone who's in a difficult trial. Because you have trusted in the Lord, you can be assured that God Most High, God Almighty, will deliver and protect you. And in verse 3, he speaks of deliverance from the snare of the fowler and from a deadly pestilence. Again, what a way to present our weakness, right? We're like a little bird flying about, being trapped, being hunted. And again, using more bird language in verse 4, it's like a bird covering its young with its wings or even its eggs, right? We're vulnerable. We need protection and shelter. When you feel attacked, hunted, God covers and protects you. He's your defender and your deliverer. And verse 5 and 6 follow with what is essentially a a command, an imperative. You will not fear. You shall not fear. And then it lists the range of terrors from night and day, dark to noonday. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. By taking these extremes, uh, it's sort of a rhetorical image of anything. You needn't fear anything. And verses 7 and 8 appear to paint a picture where the believer in the Lord is is a sort of indestructible superhero on the battlefield, right? A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Now you recall in Psalm 90, one of the themes of Psalm 90 was that men grow up like grass and fade away because they're under God's wrath. God consigns them back to the dust in His judgment and in His anger. And there's, there's a, an echo of that. We see generations, thousand rise and fall all around us. 
But the psalmist, the psalmist recognizes that he is protected from the Lord's wrath. Calvin is so good again when he writes, The psalmist doesn't hesitate to assert that when universal ruin prevails around, the Lord's children are the objects of his distinguishing care. They are preserved amidst general destruction. The lesson is one which is needed by us all, that though naturally subject to common evils which are spread around, in other words, we get sick and die too, we are privileged with a special exemption which secures our safety in the midst of dangers. In other words, the psalmist is looking out over the wreckage of a broken and fallen world, of human sin and death. And even in the midst of that destruction, he senses God's love and care for him. Brothers, we can apply this and remember what the New Testament says when death comes to believers or to their loved ones. We grieve the horror of death, but not without hope. There is a pointing forward to the resurrection here. There is a special exemption of God's grace and mercy. But we do look out and we see that this is God's judgment on a sinful world. One of the ways this psalm is so powerful is that it speaks to the individual. It's addressing not Israel or the nation, even the king. It's addressing the individual believer. And verse 9 reiterates the confession that opened the psalm. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. The Lord's covenant promise for His nation, for His people, for Israel, needed to be joined by faith. And it's because the believer seeks refuge in the Lord that he enjoys these blessings. It's not enough that these promises are out there in the abstract if you don't claim them, brothers and sisters, if you don't know them. Now, this book of the Psalter, book 4, is really oriented towards those believers who are coming back from exile. And think of the circumstances you read in the book of Nehemiah or Ezra. These people straggling back and they're trying to rebuild the wall and it's not going so well and they're being attacked and some people rebel and some people do this. Everyone's going their own way. Right? It's, it's like the book of Judges. Everyone did what they think is right in their own heart. And this psalm is saying, trust in the Lord. You don't have a king. You don't have a kingdom even. But you're rebuilding the temple. God's house where you can dwell and be safe and secure as they build up the walls. And so this psalm really speaks to its moment and it speaks to our moment, brothers and sisters, right? We need to unite the promises to faith. And the protection that faith provides is absolute. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. The image here conjures the protection which God's people enjoyed through the plagues in Egypt. You recall, the hail fell, but it only fell in the Egyptian parts. The cattle died, but only in the Egyptian parts of the land. The flies and the gnats, they didn't infest the homes of the Israelites. And so this mosaic theme of Book 4, the Exodus theme, which kicked off in the last psalm, carries over into Psalm 91. As the plagues would strike the land of Egypt... And ultimately, the plague of the day of the angel of death. God's people would take shelter in his house. They would take shelter, indeed, in the Lord himself. The Lord who provided the Passover lamb. Provided the blood. And said, if you're not inside that household of faith and trust, you will be destroyed. And the protection 
of the Lord is given a different aspect in verses 11 through 13. And it shifts. Again, we've, we've had sort of this avian image. We've had this warfare, this battlefield image. We've had a pestilence or disease image. But now it shifts to a pilgrimage or a traveling image. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Now this can be read in a purely metaphorical way, in all, in all of life's ways, in all of life's circumstances. Or, I think, there's a strong metaphor here for the travelers. Again, those coming back from exile. One theme we see in the prophets is a second exodus as they're coming out of the bondage and slavery of Babylon back to God's land of promise. The Lord commands his angel to guard you in all of your ways. This is a powerful allusion to Exodus chapter 23, to the first exodus, where the Lord says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. Same exact language. And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. And obey his voice. You see, the presence of the angel isn't a magic talisman. It's not just a trinket you wear around your neck. It's a voice you have to follow and trust in. Obey his voice. Do not rebel, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. The one who knows the name of the Lord trusts in him. And he says again, a few verses later, When my angel goes before you, he'll bring you into the land. I will blot out your enemies. It's the same promise we're seeing here. What an amazing reminder to God's people. Through the trials and uncertainties of life. Through a new venture. Through a new campaign or building project. You can see how the Lord's protection, the Lord's refuge, is cast in the terms of Moses and the Exodus. The Lord is the shelter from plagues. He commands angels to guard the way of his people. In the first three books of the Psalter, in Psalm 1 to 89... We were encouraged explicitly in the closing verses of Psalm 2 to trust in the Lord through His anointed. Trust in the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, in the Messiah. And here, with the destruction of the line of David, the apparent destruction of the line of David, the Psalter steps back and says, Trust in the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord. The Psalter reminds us that the Lord is our refuge no matter where we are. In exile or in Israel, in the temple or in our home. This brings us to our third point. God's promises to those who call upon his name. And again, the poem shifts, the song shifts to the first person. And it closes with the Lord our refuge making his own promises. These are the promises for the one who holds fast to the Lord in love. It's the language of cleaving as a husband and a wife. We heard in our confession, our catechism lesson this morning, that Christ loves the church and washes her and purifies her. And the church returns his affection. We cling in love. We know the Lord's name. In this section, these three verses, there are seven verbs. Usually when you find those Special numbers in the Psalter, it's it's by design. There are seven things, verbs, the promise the Lord promises to do. I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. 
I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him with long life. I will show him my salvation. And in the center of these seven promised uh, blessings, verbs, there is another blessing expressed not as an action, but as a state of affairs. It is God's presence with his people in time of trial. I will be with him in trouble. And in the Hebrew, there's no verb to be. It's just with him, I trouble. I'll be with you in trouble. This is the answer to Moses' prayer in Psalm 90. When he said, return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on us, your servants. Satisfy us. I will satisfy you. In the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants. He says, I will show him my salvation and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. Establish the work of your hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God is not only present with his people in the day of trouble, but he delivers them from it. He protects and shelters and rescues them. He satisfies them. And the language of satisfaction is the language of being well watered, being filled up. He will fill you with the finest wheat, the Psalter says again and again and again. I filled you with bread from heaven. And you remember that image of Psalm 1. We're going to see it again next week, actually in three weeks, in Psalm 92. The image of being a tree planted by living waters, fed by the living water, satisfied. Not grass that grows up daily and withers and dries. That's the world. The brevity of life, that's the world. We are promised long, fruitful days in the Lord. And this brings us to a fourth and final concluding point. The use and abuse of God's promises. Now, I must say that I don't often quote Satan, Mr. Devil, in my sermons. uh, But our New Testament lesson does. And reminds us that, that sometimes the devil uses the Bible against God's people. Twice Jesus had answered the tempter with scripture. Turn this stone into bread, he said. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. And when Satan told him he'd give him all the kingdoms of the world, if he just worshipped him, Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you serve. So Satan, the great deceiver, the great copycat, tempts Jesus with scripture. And Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan knows the Bible. (laughs) Remembering Bible verses isn't enough. This is Psalm 91. And Jesus answered him, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. The temptation of Christ by the devil raises for us the question of how we should read these promises. Should we read them uh, literally? Like the little talisman? If you just have these words, nothing will happen to you. And there are some faith groups uh, that... Think this way, sort of the prosperity gospel. Well, God promises and I claim it, and I really mean it. If my faith is strong enough, I'll get that check in the mail to pay my rent. I won't get sick. 
My child who fell out of the window and is a paraplegic will walk again if I trust God enough. The problem with this, brothers and sisters, is that the scriptures themselves testify otherwise. Good and righteous people die young, Ecclesiastes 7. Job suffers adversity as a righteous man, chapter 1 and 2. Peter in the New Testament tells us that some suffer for doing good, for doing the right thing. The theology of glory is a handy descriptor of this. It's what Luther called it. It ultimately will lead us to disillusionment and despair. If God is just here to fulfill our requests, to protect us, we will be disappointed by the confusion and difficulties of life. So perhaps some suggest we should just read these promises hyperbolically. It's not like God will save you from everything, but he's pretty good most of the time. And it's poetry, so, eh, you know, they're just glowing words. And a third option is to read them as true promises, but not merely true here and now, but for the age to come. Right? The reminder that the warfare that the New Testament talks about is spiritual warfare. And we do know that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks in language very reminiscent of Psalm 91 uh, in 2 Timothy 4. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Holy cow. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely, where? Into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul writes this way, even though he's writing from prison, this letter. And he says earlier in chapter 4 that he's been poured out like a drink offering. He's given everything. His life has been torn apart. Brothers and sisters, it is true that poetry and wisdom literature don't come to us uh, like math theorems or logic uh, statements. It's not law. It's not history. It's a poem. And uh, my Psalms teacher from back in seminary writes, I think, a very helpful thing. That all of these perspectives can and do work together in poetry. He writes, perhaps we're not forced to choose among a literal or a hyperbolic or an eschatological or end times interpretation. Perhaps each provides a window on the truth. The promises do contain a hyperbolic element, but does not hyperbole function to produce faith in these promises, faith in the concrete circumstances of this life. And certainly the purpose of our text is to instill within us faith in God as the ultimate source of our protection from the dangers of this life. Even as we wait for the perfection that is the life to come, when we will be categorically free from all danger. There's also another, I would say, the most important lesson to be found here. The blessings of God's protection come to those who trust in the Lord, who dwell in the shelter that he provides, those who have faith. And the greatest threat, the greatest evil that we face are those tribulations, the world, the flesh, and the devil that seek to steal our faith, that seek to steal our confidence in God's promises. This is the serpent's great and final aim with Jesus. He wants the serpent to put his trust in him, in power, in riches, and not in his heavenly father. He taunts him. The Lord can't protect you. Worship me. Put the Lord to the test, the serpent says. Throw yourself down. If if you're the real deal. Are you troubled? 
Surely God won't save you. Or what, what do some of the mockers say at the cross? Come down! You said you're the Son of God. Why are you up there suffering? And here it is precious for us to remember, brothers or sisters, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That He began His ministry. This is the very opening of His ministry with a great trial. Where He was subjected on our behalf to the taunts and temptations of the deceiver. He was tempted for you. He stood strong in your place. He was tempted in all ways, Hebrews tells us, without sin. Jesus was driven into the wilderness and Jesus, the second Adam, was faithful where you and I and Israel have failed. Jesus' perfect obedience, His perfect faith, is like that blood of the Lamb which shelters and protects you. Put on Christ. He's like armor. You shelter in His righteousness. We don't abuse these promises when we trust in the Lord. And Jesus trampled the serpent underfoot. When he, by faith alone and the power of God's word, defeated the serpent. And so Jesus, through his perfect obedience, through his perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness, has become our refuge. He is our Lamb of God. He is a great shield and covering. And so we might reflect upon and and draw upon and rest in these final words. As the words of Christ the Lord to us. Because you hold fast to me, Jesus says, in love. I will deliver you. I will protect you. Because you know my name. The name of Jesus, Savior. When you call to me, he says, I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you and honor you. With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. That salvation which he worked when he took on our sin was with us in our trials and conquered them for his glory and ours. Let's pray. Merciful God, we behold your salvation in bread and wine. You've given us tangible, visible symbols which we can smell and taste and touch. For we know our faith is weak and yet you are strong. We know that you will hold on to every one your Father gives to you. You know that those who hear your voice today, you will keep and protect, for you are the good shepherd. Guard us on the way, lead us to rest and calm waters. Bless your people as we take shelter in your house. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.